All right, so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, going through the book of 1 Corinthians, addressed a number of issues, and the last time we got together, last couple of times we're talking about a problem of sexual immorality that had come up in the church, and uh, last Sunday Paul was tackling a number of issues related to married life and the single way of life. I want to pick up the discussion and cover the second half of chapter 7 where Paul focuses more specifically on the single way of life. Now, more than half of the people in this room are married, and so you may think, well, I can just daydream or, or, or doze or go out for a walk or something like that. Hang in there. There's more that I think you're going to find pertinent to your life than you may have realized in this. So, Uh, A little bit of background here, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 to 6. It's good to appreciate Paul's relation to this subject. Subject of he's speaking about the, the, the single Christian life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 to 6, Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, who of course is Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So, uh, what do we learn about Paul here? He he says, uh, he says, don't we have the right to take along a believing wife like all the other apostles do, or like most of the apostles do, including Peter? So, that tells me how Paul is. He is on his journey as a single man. Now, either... I don't know. Paul was Paul. Maybe Paul had been living his whole life as a single celibate man, or he may have been a widower, or uh, possibly he and his his wife had decided by mutual consent that for the sake of the gospel that he would go on. But regardless, he was living life at this point in time as a single and celibate person, living that kind of a lifestyle. Unlike. Most of the other apostles who had a wife along with them. They believing wives accompanied them. Now, with that in mind, let's think about what Paul says in verse 26. He says, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul's, and one of the things he's talking about and what follows is the, the temptation of sexual morality. So, so Paul is saying, Paul's living the life of, of a single man, and he's saying, I keep my flesh, my body under subjection so that I won't be disqualified. So that gives me an appreciation for what Paul is dealing with in his own life. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, with that in mind. 
Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So obviously he's talking to married couples here. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, you know, I wish all people had the gift that I have. So Paul had the ability to be content as a single in a single celibate lifestyle. He says, I wish all people were like I was, like I am, but but they're not. And so uh, he says, you know, there are various gifts that God has given people, all different ones to different people. Now, with, with that in mind, let's let's also read. Verses 8 and 9. So here he's talking about, in the first half of chapter 7, he's talking to Christians who are married to other Christians, Christians who are unmarried, and then Christians who are married to non-Christians. He's talking about all three groups. In verses, uh, so, so he's, he's talking in verses 8 and 9. He says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, It's good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn. And then with with passions and italics, it's not not in the text there. So uh, he said, I wish that they would remain even as I am. I think it's another reference to the fact that Paul is leaving a single celibate lifestyle. And uh, so he's talking to... Widows, and presumably widowers as well, who, who would lose their spouses in death. And he's calling them to ha- keep the same lifestyle that he is in his own life, as a, a single celibate life. And then in verse 10, verses 10 to 16, now the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by her husband. Otherwise, your children be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. How do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? How do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? So, uh, you know, some people uh, think that when you become a Christian, it's a guarantee. If, you, if you're a Christian, your wife's a Christian, you're going to have a great marriage because, after all, you're both Christians. And, and I even see churches that use this as kind of evangelistic bait. You know, you're, you're having difficulty in your marriage. will become Christians, and, and everything's going to work out. You can have a great family. You can have a great marriage. You can have a great life. And that's not always the way it is. So Paul is saying here that... Some people are going to face severe challenges in their marriage so that they may have to go through a time of separation, even when both of them are Christians. And it could be short-term, after which they reconcile, 
or it could be for an indefinitely long period of time until the death of one party or the other. So, while marriage between two faithful Christians may be a wonderful opportunity to have a good relationship, there is no guarantee here. Sometimes that doesn't happen, but regardless, we have to remain faithful to the Lord and follow the instructions and the options that are given here by Paul. So, on the single way of life, so some people, there are some people who are, who are single when they become Christians, there are some people who are widows or widowers who are, who are facing the single life, and there's other people who are married, but who are facing severe challenges where they have to separate for some period of time, they may come back together, they may not. So, there's several people he's talking about who, for one reason or another, are going to be facing this single lifestyle. So, the end of the chapter, verse 25 to the end of the chapter here, Paul talks specifically uh, back to the issue of people who are living the single life for one reason or another. And those who are married, what happens if your spouse dies or uh, becomes very ill or, or, or some other serious problem comes up? You may have to go through a period of time like this yourself, so it's good for us to all become familiar with what he says here. So I'm going to read the whole section. 25 through verse 40, the end of the chapter. We'll read the whole section, then we're going to go back and talk about specific things. But it's all, it's all one, one idea. So I want to read it all together so we can listen to it. So follow along. Verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. It's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. So from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. She may be holy, both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he's behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she's past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and is so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does well better. 
A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So, let's process this. This is a discussion here of what's good and acceptable versus what's better. Sometimes in the Bible you have this is good and that's bad. In this case, in this situation, this is good but that's better. So what Paul is saying here, and, and for example, in verse 38, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. So two, two options, one good and one even better than that. And he gives us the choice. So I see in Paul's discussion, in all of the things Paul says about marriage and sexuality, he puts things in three categories. There's things that are completely unacceptable. There are things that are good, and there are things that are even better. Those are the three different areas. In the first category, if we look at all the things, not just what we talked about today, but before this, things that Paul says are unacceptable. Number one, fornication. That's sex between two unmarried people. Homosexual relations. Adultery, violation of, of the marriage covenant or one of both people. Uh, divorcing your spouse, as Jesus said, except in the case of marital unfaithfulness. Getting married while your spouse is still living. These are all things that are unacceptable. Being consumed with lust. And for someone who's a Christian to enter a marriage with someone who's not a Christian. Okay, so if you're a Christian already... If you were married to somebody who's not a Christian before you become a Christian, that's another story. But if, if somebody is a Christian, to marry someone who's not a Christian is not acceptable either. So these are all things, in Paul's saying, these are in the category if you can't do that. right? Then there are things that are good and acceptable. For a single person to marry another Christian. This is good and acceptable. For a widow or presumably a widower as well, to get remarried to another Christian spouse. These are good. These are acceptable. However, what Paul says is the best way. This is him saying this. So this is, it may, we may have difficulty with what he's saying, but this is what he's saying right here. What Paul considers the best way of life is for a single person to remain single if they can be content in that situation and not struggle. Also, for a widow, or presumably a widower, after their spouse dies, it is best for them to remain single if they can be content in that state. Of course, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul talks about the young, younger widows... He told Timothy, tell the younger widows they better get married again because they're going to get in trouble if they don't. And he's talking about the, the lust of the flesh and, and uh, becoming gossips and busybodies that they're, they're going to get in all kinds of trouble if they don't do this. They're going to, it says in uh, 1 Timothy 5.14, I desire the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So that's a that's a... A little uh, counterpoint to what he's saying right here is that for the younger widows, he thinks that they, it's probably best for them to get married. 
Uh, so, this may be a little uncomfortable to some of us. He said it's better to remain single, particularly those of us who are in the room who are already married. It's like, well, well what do we do with this? So he said it's better to remain single. First question, and there's a few, several questions I want to ask of Paul and of the text here. First of all, why does Paul believe it's better to remain single than to get married? I thought marriage was a good thing. So why is it even better to remain single? Uh, in verse 28, he says, If you do marry, you've not sinned. And if the virgin marries, she's not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. He's saying, he's saying I want to... I want to spare you from problems. Your life is going to be simpler. You're going to have fewer problems if you stay single. So that's, so he's, that, that's one reason is to avoid problems. Another reason, I, I, there's a lot of smiles in the room here, so I think people know what I'm talking about. You know what he's talking about. You can relate to that. It's the second reason. He says the time is short. Well, what is that referring to? Uh, He says, I say this, brethren, the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should be as those they had none. He goes on and says, the form of this world is passing away. Now, there there are a number of places in the scriptures throughout the New Testament where Jesus and the apostles talk about this life as it's, it's it's a mist that appears for a little while, and then it's gone. The time is short. We're in the last days, okay? And we need to be living with that in mind. Dave was talking about that earlier, you know, when the the people had, were taking the Passover meal. They had their sandals on their feet and they had their staff in their hand. They're ready to go at a moment's notice, all right? They're not camped out here. We're the aliens and strangers in the world. Peter warned us in 2 Peter chapter 3, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We need to be prepared at all times and that many would be surprised and be found unprepared as they were in the days of Noah and the flood. A number of early Christian writers saw this statement by Paul that the time is short in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as something that very much applies to all of us because we are in the last days. And I'll, I'll this uh, Tertullian, Anacene Fathers, Volume 3, page 446, Cyprian, and Volume 5, page 536. I'll put the references in the notes for those who want to chase that down. The third reason that Paul gives, he says that the single person can live in undivided attention serving the Lord. Verse 32, it says, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. She may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. One of the biggest problems facing many of us here is distraction. The distractions of the world and probably the group that is, that is, that is in the toughest situation is 
Married women with young children. Okay, because you've got your husband and you've got the children. Uh, talk about divided attention. This is very, very hard. And just to, just to spend time in the Word during the day can be a massive challenge in and of itself. Okay? Do, do, I, do, I, uh, do I have a little acknowledgement on that? So, so amen. So, so that, that's the whole idea. Paul says, I want you to be able to serve the Lord without distraction because you're, you're divided. You're trying to please your husband. You're trying, and obviously, your husband, it's the whole family situation. So uh, uh, it, it's tough, not only for the women, but also for the men uh, as they're having to in most cases, be working very hard to provide financially for their family and take care of all their other responsibilities. A married man's attention is very divided, particularly when children enter the picture. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people today choose the single life, and a lot of them are totally unspiritual, okay? Uh, fear of commitment. Is one. I was really. I got married fairly late in life. I was. I was scared to death of marriage. I mean, the whole the whole idea of no back door, you can't get out of marriage. I thought this is the rest of my life. I was terrified of being committed for the rest of my life. So fear of commitment that keeps people from getting married. Desire for comfort and independence. Wanting to live an Epicurean lifestyle, maximizing your pleasure, not wanting the burden of responsibility of having to provide for a wife and children. So there are lots of reasons why people, why men choose not to get married. And, and a lot of them are not particularly spiritual. So he's talking about people who are doing this for the sake of the kingdom of God so that they can serve the Lord with an undivided attention. So if somebody says, well, is it more spiritually married or single? I can't answer that question. The question is why? Are you staying single or why are you getting married? Because you can do either one for very godly purposes or you can do either one for extremely selfish purposes. So I can't really tell who's, who's being selfish and who's not based on just uh, their, their, their superficial things like that. Um, for the brothers here, uh, I read an article recently about what are the most expensive states in the United States to live in, okay? Now, number one was Hawaii, all right? They, we, that's understandable. It's an island. You've got to ship everything out there. It's a vacation place. Number two is California. Number three is my own state where my son lives. Number three is my own home state of New Jersey, my state of origin. Number four is, you guessed it, Massachusetts. So here we are, living in eastern Massachusetts in the Boston area, one of the most expensive places to live. And for those who have been looking for apartments to rent or houses to live in, you realize how ridiculously expensive it is to live here, okay? And New Hampshire becomes very attractive alternative. So we have some, some brothers here moving to New Hampshire trying to recruit other people to go up there too. I get it. I totally get it. All right. It's ridiculously expensive, particularly if you say, I want to live in the Boston area and support the family on one income 
and have a large family and homeschool my kids. I mean, you're, you're just killing yourself right there. It's incredibly hard to do that. So I get it. It's really tough. And anybody who's listening to this is probably going to think, well, I'll never move to Boston now. I was thinking about going there, but I don't. I just, just count the cost. It's just it's the way it is here. So, but it's tough. It's, but it's especially tough in a place like Boston. Uh, so this teaching of Paul about it's better to be living the single celibate life. Is this just Paul being an outlier here? You know, he says, I'm, I'm writing with the wisdom that God gave me. Well, Peter, Peter was married. The other guys are married. Is this just Paul's thing? Or is there any place where Jesus taught something like that? That it's better to be single? Well, actually, yes, there is. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 19. It's always good, best to start with Jesus, but we can't do that because we're going through 1 Corinthians. So yeah. let's, let's, let's go Matthew chapter 19. Now, I was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, so I, 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 let's say, I put it, put it respectfully here, I didn't get the world's best Bible education, but there were certain passages of Scripture that I did get to know, and this was one of them. All right, Matthew chapter 19. Uh, so Jesus here is being challenged by the Pharisees on what Moses taught regarding divorce. And Matthew 19, verse 8, he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man and his wife, it's better not to marry. And of course, here's where Jesus should step in and say, I oh, know you, you totally misunderstood what I was saying. I, uh, no, I, you're taking it too far. Jesus didn't do that. He doubled down. He used this as an opportunity to teach. Verse 11, But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it let him accept it. So what's Jesus saying there? Make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? He's, he's using, speaking figuratively here. I don't think literally making themselves eunuchs. But figuratively, the people who've renounced marriage, that, that, that have decided that when they said it's better not to marry, Peter says, you know, uh, Jesus says, you know, actually, that there will be some who will make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom's sake, who will forsake marriage for the sake of the kingdom. So Jesus is holding up here the single celibate lifestyle. I mentioned that I was, I was raised Roman Catholic. And uh, uh, I went to a Catholic high school that was run by an order of brothers. And these are men who have taken a vow of celibacy for the rest of their lives and they're just, all they're doing, they don't have a wife to answer to and so they can live cheap 
and they just devote themselves to educating young men. And uh, once a year, this is something my Protestant friends would, would never appreciate, once a year they have a day called Vocation Day. And so most of my Protestant friends, when they hear about Vocation Day, they say, oh, they're probably somebody's going to go up and talk about being an engineer and then being a plumber, being an electrician, being an accountant, all the different vocations you can choose. No, but Vocation Day in the Catholic Church, in the Catholic high school, was men who, from different religious orders and parish priests would come, up, would come up and they'd be brothers or they'd be priests and all of them had taken a lifelong vow of celibacy and they were pitching you to come and join their religious order. So that was vocation day. So vocation had a special meaning for people from a Catholic background. Uh, so that, that's how I was raised. So the whole idea of some would make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, I knew lots of people in the growing up Catholic who had done this. Okay, then years later, I, I end up in the Church of Christ. I, I, I've become friends with people from Protestant backgrounds in the Anabaptist world. I mean, they know nothing of this. This is a teaching that is, does not get a whole lot of attention in, in those, uh, many of these other circles. Um, and in contrast, the attitude is that the highest spiritual life... So if you ask me as, as a young man, what, if you wanted to absolutely commit your life to the absolute fullest of serving God, what would you do? And I'd say, well, I'd, I'd obviously I'd renounce marriage so I could serve God uh, uh, as a single person, as a, as a brother or priest or something like that. So to, to be, if I really wanted to go for the, the absolute highest level, it's not necessary to be saved, but if somebody asked me that question, I'd say, well, that's probably the best thing you can do. That's what Jesus and Paul talked about. Uh, but, but since that time, in other groups, you know, most people, you say, what's the greatest thing you could possibly do with your life? They say, well, the, probably the greatest thing I could do is I could be a mother of, of uh, you know, ten, ten children, raise them all faithful Christians. Or I could be a father uh, of a large family and, and raise them and maybe be an elder in a church, something like that. Or be a, be a missionary and bring my whole family with me. Um, you know, singles ministry, one of the churches I was in for many years, the singles ministry, the, the married life was held up as that's the ultimate way of life. And the singles ministry was for, uh, how do we put this, the less thans, the people who haven't managed to find a partner in life yet, okay? So the singles ministry would be to try to help other single people find each other so they could graduate and move up into the married ministry. Or... Otherwise, it would be to have enough social events so that they would feel connected so that they wouldn't fall away and just end up going, going away from the Lord into, into all kinds of sin. So that was the whole idea of the singles ministry in the church. It wasn't, it wasn't the hot, radical hotbed where the most zealous people from the Lord, for the Lord, would go. Okay? And, and as I mentioned earlier, the whole idea of the great family life was held out as bait in evangelism. That, you know, you, you can come here, you can have a great marriage, you have a great family, and uh, yeah, we can you learn more about the Christian faith. But that was, the, that was the original draw. And I see that not only in Protestant churches, churches of Christ, Anabaptist churches as well. So... A question I want to throw out to you. This is, and this is, this is not a new one. You'll see that that question was, was around in the early church. Well, what happened to the command, 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How are you going to do that as a single celibate person? Okay, that's a good question. You can't do it. Why, if Jesus wants us to have big families and fill the earth, why in the world would he, would he be holding this out as a, as a great alternative? He should be saying, if you really want to advance the kingdom of God, get married and have a big family. That's what you should do. So, uh, and, and just by the way, I have no agenda here particularly. I'm just trying to wrestle with the scriptures. I'm not, I'm not trying to attack any group or any, any, any group of people. I'm just trying to wrestle with the scriptures. Okay? You know, a lot of the people who listen to these lesson, the lessons we post online are from conservative and Baptist backgrounds where people have big families. I love big families. I love my Anabaptist friends. I, I'm not throwing stones at any of this. My daughter, uh, right after she got married, she had three boys, you know, right, and I hope that she has a lot more. I love children, and I, I encourage people who are married, have as many children as you're able to spiritually train. And you can figure that one out what that means, all right? So <laughs> be fruitful, multiply. So, but what, what's, if, 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 if we're supposed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, you know, what's, what happened to that? Why would Jesus be holding up a single and celibate life? And Paul, the same thing, is the best way to go. Um, Eusebius, in proof of the gospel, in, in book one, chapter nine. So he's writing around the year 320. Eusebius is famous a Christian historian, but he's also a great apologist. And he, he, he opens that question up and answers it. So he's talking about people in the, Old, in the Old Testament. He says, why were they keenly concerned with marriage and reproduction while we, the Christians, to some extent, disregard it? So he's saying, you know, why is it that in the Old Testament they were focused on that? And said so the New Testament, and he, he talks about many people in the church in the 300s were single, were celibate. So it was just, just, that's, not their, that's not their emphasis, whereas it was in the Old Testament. And he goes through this and, and gives, he gives a few reasons. And one of them, he says, you know, in the beginning, the earth was kind of empty. There weren't that many people. And so God says, you better fill it up. All right. Uh, and he's writing. This is not some modern population. The world is overpopulated guy. This is somebody writing in the 300s. So he said that's one thing. I had to fill the world up. See, the other thing was the people, the world was filled with incredibly depraved, ungodly people. And God wanted some people who believed in him. So he talked to the Jews about, you know, you need to reproduce and populate and, and fill the land. They even had uh, polygamy, uh, which, was, which was tolerated at that point in time. So uh, that's, that's, those are some of the reasons. And then he says, and I might give this third reason why godly men of old were so devoted to procreation of their children. The rest of mankind were increasing in evil and falling into uncivilized, inhuman, and savage mode of life. They'd given themselves up completely to godliness and impiety, while they themselves, a very scanty remnant, had divorced themselves from the life of the many, and from common association with other men, they were living apart from other nations in isolation. They were organizing a new kind of polity. They were evolving a life of true wisdom and religion, unmingled with other men. They wished to hand on to posterity the fiery seed of their own religion. They did not intend that their piety should fail and perish when they themselves died. So they had foresight 
for producing and raising children. Then he, he contrasts that. He says, but in our day, further down, men are necessarily devoted to celibacy that they may have leisure for higher things. They've undertaken to bring up not one or two children, but a prodigious number, and to educate them in godliness and to care for their life generally. So what he's saying is people would be just devoting themselves, many Christians would devote themselves to a life of celibacy so that they could educate other people, be fully devoted to the work of the kingdom of God. So uh, he said the directive to have many offspring is part of the old covenant. Uh, we have a new direction now that the need for many offspring was to create a base of godly people from which the Lord could, could uh, come and could operate. And while that, while that nation was imperfect, at least it was a foundation for the gospel to be planted. And, uh, but now the challenge is to bring the unbelieving nations of the world to knowledge of the Savior. And he said, for that reason, many had devoted themselves to celibacy. They're more concerned about spiritual descendants than physical descendants. Okay? Uh, so that's uh, Eusebius writing in the early 300s. Cyprian writing about 70 years earlier, 250. He talks about the change that took place. This is in uh, Ananicene Fathers, Volume 5, five page 436. Said the first decree commanded to increase and multiply. The second enjoined continency. While the world is still rough and void, we are propagated by the fruitful begetting of numbers, and we increase to the enlargement of the human race. Now, when the world is filled and the earth supplied, they who can receive continency, living after the manner of eunuchs, are made eunuchs unto the kingdom. Nor does the Lord command this, but he exhorts it. Nor does he impose the yoke of necessity since the cho free choice is left to the will. So that's what he's saying is you don't have to do this, but it's offered as an opportunity. God's desire is to convert the nations. And that to, in order to do that, that some people would live single and celibate lives, lives uh, to do that. Tertullian, I'll, I'll throw another quote from him in, in the notes. It says, makes the same point even earlier than that. Um, for those who are contemplating a single and celibate life, either after the death of a spouse or for some other reason or who are, or are single, I want to give you an encouraging exhortation from Cyprian, who's writing around the year 250. He's, he's speaking to the virgins in the church about the importance of, of their role. He says, hold fast, O virgins. Hold fast what you've begun to be. Hold fast what you shall be. A great reward awaits you. A great recompense of virtue, the immense advantage of chastity. Do you wish to know what ill the virtue of continence avoids, which good it possesses? I will multiply, says God to the woman, your sorrows and groanings. And in sorrow you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. I said, he says, you're free from this sentence. Okay, <laughs> Childbirth 
and being subject to a husband. He says, you're liberated from that, women, if you choose to be single. All right, continue. You do not fear the sorrows and groans of women. You have no fear of childbearing, nor is your husband Lord over you, but the Lord is head. And, but your Lord and head is Christ. After the likeness in the place of man with that of men, your lot and your condition is equal. It is the word of the Lord which says, the children of this world beget and are begotten, but they who are counted worthy of that world and the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither shall they die anymore, for they're equal to the angels of God, being the children of the resurrection. Of course, that's what they're talking about. Uh, will there be... When Jesus was asked the question, I think it's in Matthew 21, 22, about... Will there be marriage in heaven? And he says, no, you're going to be like the angels. And so Cyprian is saying, guess what? You're going to get a jump on that. That what, what, you're, what you're looking forward to, you're going to embrace a part of that in this life. That which we shall be, you've already begun to be. You possess already in this world the glory of the resurrection. You pass through the world without the contagion of the world, and that you continue chaste and virgins. You're equal with the angels of God. Only let your virginity remain and endure substantial and uninjured. As it begun bravely, let it persevere continuously, and not seek the ornaments of necklaces or garments, but of conduct. Let it look toward God in heaven, and not lower to the lust of the flesh in the world, the eyes uplifted to things above. Or set them upon earthly things. That's uh, and I see in Father's Volume Five, page four thirty-six, on the dress of virgins, chapter twenty-two. So this is an encouraging charge for people who want to get a jump on the after, some of the blessings of the afterlife. And uh, <clears throat> addressed to his wife, Tertullian touches on the issue of remarriage. So you know when you. Paul says here that if your spouse dies, you are free to marry, but only in the Lord. But he says, I think you're better off staying single. And Tertullian comments on this, and he ties that together with 1 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have the requirements for being an elder or a deacon. And one of the requirements is he must be the husband of one wife. Now, what is that about? Does that mean he must be married? Does that mean he can't be a polygamist? Now, polygamy is, is, is off the table for any Christian. So obviously, you're not going to say an elder must. It's like saying he can't be an adulterer. So that's not what he's talking about. Tertullian says that if an elder's wife dies, he can't remarry. He must be the husband of one wife. That means one during his lifetime. It's not talking about polygamy. The same thing with deacons. That was a requirement that was understood by the church. And if you want to know more about that, there's an article in Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs on twice married. But that's how the church understood that. So a man could be married once or could be a widower, but he could not, after his wife died, marry again if he wants to be an elder or a deacon. So those who are considering being elders or deacons in the church, this is another thing to consider. Are you ready to make a decision, if my wife dies, I will not remarry? 
Okay, because that's that's the that's the, the significance of that requirement there. And Paul and uh, Tertullian definitely ties it back to this. Um, just a few concluding thoughts on this. <clears throat> there are some things that are forbidden by God. There are others that are good, and there are others that are better. And you're going to make it to heaven if you just do what's good, all right? You don't, not, this isn't a requirement. Uh, and if you can't be content as a single person, it's good to seek marriage. Uh, and don't fool yourself. Don't try to fool yourself. And, and, and be, pretend that you're more spiritual than you really are, okay? Uh, many people throughout the centuries have gotten themselves into trouble. I'm reading this in Cyprian. And also in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and what Paul is writing is that there were young people who thought they were cut out for the single celibate life, who tried it out and it didn't go well, and they ended up getting involved in very serious sin. So don't do that. This is not a road that's for everybody. Don't fool yourself. Um, the single celibate life is held up by Paul just as it was by Jesus but only if it's for the sake of the kingdom of God. There's nothing particularly spiritual about remaining single to avoid responsibility. For those of us who are married, I think we need to adjust our view of the single life. Marriage shouldn't be looking down on singles, and singles shouldn't be looking down on marriage. And I think over the course of church history, there's been a tendency to react where the, the Roman Catholic Church went off the deep end in, in holding up celibacy and saying you can't be an, an elder, a presbyter in the church unless you are single, going clearly way beyond what the scriptures teach. And then other groups reacting to the other extreme of completely suppressing what Jesus and Paul said about that the single way of life is even better than the married way of life for those who want that. Let's embrace, let's have a balanced view that embraces all of these teachings. I believe this is a teaching we need to restore, including regarding the order of widows in the church, that they cannot be women who've been married more than once, and also for elders and, and deacons, the leaders in the church. So please don't misunderstand. I'm not, I'm not opposed to to large families. I think large families are wonderful. They are a blessing. Have as many children as God wants you to have by all means. But let's also recognize that God holds up the single life as people who can serve the Lord in an undistracted manner. So if one of your children decides that they want to go down that road, if their heart is right and they know what they're getting into, you can, you can, you can see that there's a place for that. Or should you become a widow or a widower, that that is a or, or, or have to go through a period of time with, with this lifestyle that God can there's 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 special blessings that can be attained from that, uh, and it's a reminder that the Christian life once again is about taking up our cross and following Jesus. Amen.